This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. It's so good to be with you this morning as we kick off Holy Week. Holy Week is the remembrance of the last week of the life of Jesus. It begins with what we celebrate today and remember today, Palm Sunday, and then works through the events of the last week. And we're going to do that this year. As a matter of fact, we have put a lot of effort, energy, and time into making spaces so that throughout this week we can celebrate, be reminded all of the things interact with the last week of the life of Jesus. Look at what we're doing. Uh, Wednesday, when we would normally have uh, first Wednesday, we're actually going to remember what Jesus did on Wednesday, which was the Passover. Okay, so Jesus celebrated the Passover Seder. This is the Last Supper. Okay, so we're going to do that for first Wednesday. We're going to reflect on that time. Then Good Friday, which was good for us, but very brutal for Jesus. This is the remembrance of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a chance for us to come face to face with that reality. So both of those nights are at our downtown location exclusively. Um, Wednesday 7, Friday is 5.30 and 7. And then next week, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, it is the moment that gives you permission to have hope. Okay, we all face death. We face death in relationships or in our finances, but the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that we have permission to have hope, no matter what we're facing, all right? And it's a beautiful, wonderful day. Don't miss next Sunday. We're, right now, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, we're 50 minutes past the hour. We have a service going on right now at our downtown location. They're wrapping up the message right now, and we're just getting started, so next Sunday will be 10 a.m. downtown, and then 9 and 10.30 here. Pray about where to go, okay? Uh, pray about which uh, service, which location to attend. As you can look around, right, you see that this room is getting full. It's getting crowded, which is an awesome thing. And so maybe next week it's the 9 o'clock. Maybe it's I'm going to invite somebody and go downtown. Just pray about it and be obedient. Do what the Lord says. Uh, we, we give out invite cards. We'll do that again today if you need some. We, we do that to just give you a tangible thing to invite your friends and your family. There are people around you that things are not going well. They are, are dealing with things that they were not expecting. And maybe they're just not in church. And those are good people to invite to come to church with you. We'd love to see them here with you. And just remember, I love to remind people of this. It takes about seven or 10 times of inviting somebody before they actually say yes and come with you. Most of us get tired after about two times. They said no. They said no. They said they were going to come, then they didn't show up. Well, that's three, okay? All right? It takes about seven. It takes about three or four times before they know you're really serious about it. Five or six times before they know you care. And about seven to ten times they'll say yes and they'll come to church. And here's the beautiful thing about any of these services. They're going to be given an opportunity to come face to face with Jesus and to make a decision for their life about it. We're so thankful for uh, really what's happening in the midst of our church. It's an amazing season for us. Now, we're going to read through the text, which comes out of Matthew chapter 21. I want you to stand as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Would you stand across the room? We're going to begin out of Matthew 21. 
in verse number one. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the, to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there and with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks anything to you or says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coal, the fold of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them along the road. The crowds went ahead of him. Those shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Father, as we stand to honor the reading of your word, we ask that you do something that is nothing short of a miracle. And that's that in this space, you speak to us. Allow our hearts and our minds to encounter the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that in this room there will be conviction, there will be challenge, and there will be change. All in the name of Jesus. We pray. Amen, amen. You may be seated. The very last verse that we looked at, verse 10, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Who is this Jesus? That's a question that if we're honest, we're still asking ourselves. And the implication of the way you answer that question is pervasive in your life. The way you answer the question, who is Jesus, will have impact in the way that you parent. It will impact the way that you relate to your spouse. It will impact your finances. It will impact your friendships. It will impact your career. Who is this Jesus? So what I want to do today is to take a few steps back and walk through the life of Jesus up to this moment that we call Palm Sunday. And I think that as we do that, you'll understand this moment on a different level. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. And this is number one in your notes. Jesus was the predicted Messiah that would liberate the people of God. The Old Testament the word testament means promise. The Old Testament, from the very beginning until the last Malachi, the last book before the New Testament, it proclaims a promise over the problem of sin. And that promise is that God is going to send a rescuer. 
Sin enters the world in the very first story, Adam and Eve. And even in that story, if you pay attention, in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible predicts that there is one who's coming. God is speaking to Satan. There is one that is coming that will crush your head. There is a liberator who's coming. Jesus was the predicted Messiah from the very beginning. And His presence here was simply to set you free. We were born into sin, bound to sin. Galatians 5.1 makes this so clear that Christ has set us free to live a free life. The purpose of the gospel is freedom. There are so many promises about who he would be and how he would come. Isaiah is filled with them, a very messianic, prophetic book. In Isaiah chapter 7, the Bible predicts that this Messiah or this liberator would be born of a virgin. And many of us know the story of Christmas. We know the the story of of Mary who's visited by an angel and Joseph and the, the wise men and the shepherds, but there's parts of the story that we don't know. The mad King Herod to protect his power that says, I'm going to kill every infant boy in that region who's within the, the age of where Jesus could have been. And so what did his family do? His family fled Israel. They, they ran away to Egypt. Not just for a few weeks, for a few years. They were refugees. Please hear me out. This is why the Bible makes... The, the, not just a plea, but the standard for the way that we interact with people who are fleeing from difficult circumstances that we're supposed to have a heart for. Okay? Then, Joseph is visited by an angel. The one who was seeking to kill Jesus is dead. And Joseph settles his family into a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Now, this is significant for two reasons. The first one we know from the story of Christmas, Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem. Why? Because that was his family home. He didn't stay in his family home. He went back to Nazareth, and here's what we know about Nazareth. It didn't have a good reputation. In John chapter 1, somebody hears of Jesus of Nazareth, and their response was a cultural idiom. It was how they responded to that situation. If somebody mentioned Nazareth, the response was, is anything good ever going to come out of Nazareth? And that's where Jesus grew up. I want you to see this. This is number two. Jesus spent most of his life in obscurity. I mean, perhaps the the most studied, the most read life history being Jesus, the the greatest all-time bestseller, the Bible, the more, there's more um, 
ancient records of the life of Jesus as those gospels were reproduced in the first couple centuries, we, we, it's entirely verifiable. He, there's so much about Jesus that's been studied and known, but so much of his life was in obscurity. Scholars believe that Jesus was born around 3 AD, maybe 4 AD. We know the birth narrative, and then they, they flee to Egypt. The only thing that we see outside of that before a very long time is when he goes to the temple when he's age 12. So for almost two decades, Jesus is outside the perspective of the gospel writers. What was he doing during that time? Well, the Bible answers that in several other places. You know, the people in his hometown called him the son of the carpenter. Some of them in other places called him the carpenter. Why did they do that? Because that's what he did for decades. There were people in Nazareth who ate dinner at tables that Jesus built, who sat in rooms that Jesus had fixed. He was a carpenter. You know what else happened? And some of us can identify with this. At some point between the last time we see Jesus and the time that he emerges in adulthood, his father had died. Jesus, being the oldest son, would have taken care of his of his family. He had to, had to step in and provide financially and provide resources. Total obscurity. Nobody knows what happened. He was not the person that everybody was going to and asking questions and what should I do and how. He was just the carpenter. Just the carpenter's son. I want you to see there's a principle here. Our most important seasons are often preceded by times of lonely preparation. You know, the Bible says not to despise humble beginnings. You need to get it in your head that sometimes God will walk me into a lonely season to prepare me for what's coming next. In those two decades, Jesus, though he was out of the perspective, God was growing him and preparing him for what would happen later. And it all starts with number three. Jesus was introduced into ministry through baptism. Some of you may have never been baptized. You may be, why should I? Well, we, we're baptized really to, to honor the tradition that Jesus began. Jesus is baptized. Now, I want you to ask the question and just deal with this for a second. Who was there when Jesus got baptized? The first person that I want you to know was there was John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was family to Jesus, okay? Their mothers were cousins. They would have known each other growing up. As a matter of fact, Mary goes to visit John's mother. And when Mary walks in pregnant with Jesus, John inside of his mother's womb begins to flip and move around. That's how in tune spiritually they were with each other. But there's something about that moment that we miss 
in our modern perspective. See, John was a rock star. I mean, we know archaeologically that John's ministry impacted around the Mediterranean Rim from Ethiopia all the way to Greece. There's archaeological evidence in Ethiopia of the descendants of John's Baptist, of having been kind of rooted into the Ethiopian church, one of the earliest churches in the world. And then around, as Paul goes on a missionary journey in the book of Acts, he comes in contact with people in Greece who say, listen, I've heard of John, but I've never heard of Jesus. John was a rock star. I mean, he was wild in his appearance. He was popular. He had crowds. He had disciples. And his ministry was simple. You came to John to be baptized in repentance for your sins. Repenting. I'm turning away. That's what that word means. I'm turning away. Baptism is this, the word baptismo in the Greek means to die in water. It's this picture of I'm immersed into the water. The old me is dead and I come out. The new me is alive. Jesus shows up. John. I want to be baptized. John, I'm, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. Now, everybody else who John had baptized was baptized for repentance. Jesus did not need to repent. Perfect life, never sinned. So why is he being baptized? He's being baptized as a public statement of his surrender to God. I was born with a plan. And that plan was for me to live the perfect life and to die the death that everybody else should die. I will be the perfect lamb. And in that moment, he's surrendering to the will of the Father. And something happens. There's somebody else there. Not only is John the Baptist there, our Heavenly Father was there too. And the Bible records in Matthew 3 that God the Father couldn't even contain Himself, speaks audibly so that everybody hears this. And here's what the Bible says. He said, a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Now I want you to see this, especially if you're a parent, okay? There's a pattern here. There's a pattern here. And, and God is showing us a key to parenting. There are three things that are being said. Look at this. This is my son, number one, to whom I love. And then three, with him I am well pleased. The father does three things in that one moment that we as parents need to do for our kids. Number one, the father emphasizes their relationship. Emphasize, this is my son. Oh, that's my son. I want you to know that if you've got some kids, every once in a while, you need to pull them aside and say, I'm so glad you're my son. I'm so glad God let me be your dad. I couldn't imagine a more perfect daughter. I'm so glad that I got to be your dad. 
emphasizing that this is my son. This is my son. Then number two, he exposes his purpose. This is my son whom I love. Now you might be thinking, but isn't his purpose to live the perfect life and to die the death that we should? Yes, but his highest purpose was to love his father and to be loved by his father. You might be a, a nurse or a teacher You might own a business. I want you to get this clear, okay? That is not your highest purpose. Your highest purpose in life is to love God and to be loved by God. As my friend Chip Judd said, God did not make you to do a list of chores. He made you for a relationship to enjoy you. And the Father exposed, I love you. I love you. You can imagine that moment of surrender and, oh, I can't, can't even hold it back. This is my son whom I loved. And then what does he do after that? He affirms him. With him, I am well pleased. I want you to, if you're a parent, I don't care how old your kids are. Your kids need to hear, I'm proud of you. It's shocking to me how hard some people appear to make that. I'm proud of you. I saw you walk through that, man. It was difficult. I'm proud of how you handled it. My son, with whom I am well Now, immediately after his baptism, Jesus, this breaks our paradigm. He is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert where he fasts for 40 days. He's broken. He's difficult in a difficult situation. And it's then that he's tested by the enemy. Three times the enemy tempts him to give up the plan of redemption. Three times Jesus says no. So after that 40-day span, he has surrendered to the Father and he has rejected the enemy. And then he gets to work, preaching, teaching, and ministering, which means healing and meeting people right where they were. But I want you to see this texture about who Jesus was. Jesus taught common people the Scriptures and minister to their needs. There is a dramatically different texture to the life of Jesus than there was to other ministers in his day and age. Rabbis were remarkably exclusive. Like they would get, parents would bring their kids to the rabbis and the rabbis would spend time and then every once in a while they'd go, you know, well, I don't believe you're going to make it. You know, so why don't you go back to mom and dad? You'd be a fisherman or, you know, and they, and they would just, it was remarkably exclusion. Only the brightest, only the best, only the, the wealthiest. So that's why when Jesus as a rabbi shows up and says, come follow me, they're like, I will do whatever to get to follow. He's remarkably inclusive. 
I mean, one of the first things you see happen in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus sets up on the side of a mountain and brings crowds in, and they begin to teach them. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And He's beginning to say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard this, but I tell you, this is how you're supposed to do it. It begins to get questioned by leaders and people in the community. And finally, a lawyer comes to him in Matthew 22. What's the greatest commandment if you're the teacher? Well, it's real simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus had this ability to take what was so complicated for others and make it so simple. And he did this with common men. Jesus called common men and broken women to follow him, and they became known as the disciples. Common men, fishermen, guys that work with their hands. A tax collector, a zealot. Broken women. Included in the followers of Jesus was a woman who used to be a prostitute a woman who was demon possessed and it had seven demons cast out of her those were the disciples and he healed people he encountered people who were broken who needed something other than what life had given and he was able to provide some of it was small and it was private it was the blind men in a room saying, we believe you can heal us and him laying hands on them and them being able to see. But some of it was remarkably public. And I want you to hear this because you will never understand Palm Sunday if you don't see this connection. See, something happens in John chapter 11 that would change how visible Jesus was. In John 11, Jesus has heard about a friend of his that was sick. He's been delayed getting there, and he finds out from Martha and Mary, his sisters, that Lazarus is dead. In John 11, Jesus weeps, but the weeping is not the end of the story. He's mourning, he's grieving, but he approaches this tomb, and he calls out into it, Lazarus, come out! The dead man, still wrapped in grave clothes, walks out of the tomb alive. And word spreads like wildfire. This Jesus, he's not just a teacher, but he's a man who can raise the dead. And as the popularity grows and the crowds grow, the religious leaders were angered by Jesus' movement and wanted him dead. This is the immediate reaction in John chapter 11. Lazarus is raised from the dead. And their response is, we cannot let him go on. We can't let this continue to happen. And the high priest, one of the chief religious leaders steps up and goes, well, it's better for one man to die than for the whole country to be thrown into chaos. So John 11, the very end of that chapter, verse 53 records, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. 
this is what sets the moment that Jesus is walking in to Jerusalem. This is why all the crowds are there. This is why the city is stirred upside down. This is the guy who just resurrected Lazarus. But the tension on the other side, this is the guy we cannot continue to let live. I want you to ask yourself the question when we think again about this story. Are we the crowd or are we those who were committed to following Jesus? to read back through the story beginning in verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus. Now, notice that. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed. Y'all need to hear me. God doesn't need your help creating a better plan. He doesn't, there's no such thing as a better plan financially. There's no such thing as a better plan for your marriage, for your friendships, for your relationships, for your life, for your career. That God doesn't need your help for that stuff. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. That's what God needs from us. For us to go, okay. That's your plan for money? God, I'll do that. That's your plan for marriage? I'll do that. God, that's your plan for friendships? I'll do that. Whatever it is, God, I'm going to do what you ask. So when they return with the the donkey and the the colt, Jesus comes riding on the colt, the mom being there to to keep the, the young colt calm. And look at what happened, verse 8. A large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches. This is why we call it Palm Sunday. Cut branches from trees and spread them along the road. Now what's happening with this, this is very ceremonial. This is how a a dignitary, a king from another country, a, a very popular figure would have been received into a community. Jesus is being treated like a king. And the crowds went ahead of him, and they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, Son of David, that's loaded. That's a term in the Old Testament that would refer to the Messiah. David was one of the key figures in the Old Testament, and it was prophesied that the Messiah would come out of the lineage of David. Now, Jesus is a son of David. He is in the lineage. This is why the birth story makes a big deal about Joseph having to go to Bethlehem because he was of the family of David. Jesus is a part of this family line. Hosanna, we sing that as praise, but the word actually means save me. Save me. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered the host city was stirred and they asked who is this and the crowds answered this is jesus the prophet from nazareth in galilee i want to make a few observations today as we close and the first one is really simple you can experience jesus but not know jesus you can experience jesus but not know him at all This is so true 
in our culture. I, listen, I've never been to a club. Okay, just say that up front. Okay, I've never been to a club. All I know is there's like a lot of haze. There's not a lot of light at all. And there's a lot of music and people just dance. And there's a lot of other stuff that happens that's not good. Okay? Any place where I know that all you're going to do is just go there and dance is probably not very attractive to me. I don't like to dance that much, okay? But I've heard stories of guys who go there and it's so dark and they're having such a good time and they're dancing and having a good time and they think they're dancing with a beautiful girl until the lights come on and they find out that they're dancing with a beautiful guy. There was an experience but they didn't know who they were experiencing. And this is pervasively true in a world where now we have a subculture that we just call hookup culture where men and women experience each other but have no relationship they don't know each other the sad truth is that that way of thinking creeps its way into this space where people show up in a place like this and say, I just got to get my cup filled to make it through the week. I need to, I need to get my worship on. I need, to, I need to have the feelings. I need to get my hands up in there. I need the chill bumps. And then you walk out of here and live however you want to. You experience God, but you don't live in a relationship with God. Now, I want you to hear this. You cannot develop a healthy, lasting relationship by only sharing experiences. This pushes against a little bit of cultural narrative right now. Because there is a parenting philosophy that has emerged over the last 10 years that as a parent, part of my job is to provide my kids with experiences. We're just going to do things together. Here's how this works. Actually, experience has to fuel knowing. It's not just experience. It's experience so that through that experience, we become more intimate with each other. We know each other more. Healthy relationships are built on knowing. This is so pervasive in the Bible that if you grew up reading the Bible in the Old King James in the Old Testament when it talked about the marital activity between a man and a woman it would describe it the word that's used is no he knew her which is very true to the original text that there's no experience without knowing experience exists to elevate and to fuel the knowing. This is so important that it's how Jesus frames our relationship with God. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. He's praying to God. This is it. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I hate to say this, but if you think the rest of your life is going to be defined by experiences without relationship, you've missed the point. Jesus is praying here. God, the whole point of this is that they know you. 
that they be known by you. Because if, if all you want from a person is an experience, all you're doing is exploiting them. And what's sad is that in many ways, so many of us do that with God. We show up in a space like this, and all we want is something from Him. God, I need you to make me feel better about that. I need to feel your presence. I need this. I need this. And we don't ever acknowledge Him in relationship. You can experience Jesus and not know Him. The second observation out of this text is so simple. It's the kingdom of God is upside down. If you look at most organizational charts, they look like a triangle. The person with the most authority, the most power is at the top. And that power and that authority trickles down and flows down. The people with the least authority and the least power are at the bottom. And that's the most. And service flows upward. All of that. The kingdom of God is inverted. The one who had the most power, the one who had all authority is at the bottom. It's an inverted triangle. And he gives up his power. He gives up his authority to serve. And he says things like Matthew 19, 30. Many of you who are the, the greatest now will be the least important then. He's talking about in the kingdom of heaven. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Y'all need to listen to me. There's some people that you have never heard of that when we get to that moment with Jesus, they will be the rock stars. God will be looking. They served people quietly, never wanted attention, never wanted adoration, never wanted the awards, but they were the people to show up. They were the people to pray. They were the people to give. And I want you to see this. There are people right now that everybody celebrates, that everybody points to, that they are the rock stars, and God's going, listen, it's not about them. They're going to be the least in the end. His kingdom is inverted. There's two groups when Jesus walks into Jerusalem that have power and authority. You've got the religious leaders and you've got Jesus and his followers. And the religious leaders do exactly what critical theory says we do with power. They take on the power. They protect their power. Any threat that comes against it, we're going to take it out. But Jesus proves critical theory to be false because what he actually does, Jesus does the inverse of that. Is all authority and all power, and he doesn't protect it at all. He just surrenders it. See, while the religious leaders plot to retain control, Jesus lays down his life willingly, willfully surrender it. And I want you to see this about surrender. Until you completely surrender to Jesus, you'll never see him for who he really is. You won't. If you haven't surrendered your marriage to Jesus, you'll never see who Jesus could be in your marriage. If you haven't surrendered your kids to Jesus, you're never going to see the perspective of parenting of who Jesus is as we parent. If you haven't surrendered your finances to Jesus, you're never going to see the miraculous provision of what happens when we are generous the way that God has planned for us to be. You'll never see Jesus completely until you've surrendered to him. Now, did that crowd 
Palm Sunday, did they see Jesus for who he really was? No, they didn't. Notice what they said. Who is this Jesus? That's Jesus, the prophet from Galilee, the prophet from Nazareth. Now, was he a prophet? Yes. Was he more than a prophet? Yes. Was he from Nazareth? Yes. But is there more to the story? Yes. See, you might have tried to invite God to only be the Lord over your eternal future, but you may not have surrendered your marriage or your finances or your relationship to, and you haven't seen completely how much He can do in your life when you've completely surrendered to Him. For us today, this looks like a compartmentalized faith where we come into a place like this and we say, I'm going to give God an hour on Sunday morning, but I'm going to run and do the life the way I want to do it the rest of the week. It's experience without relationship. And that is not surrender. Jesus led the way for this. He surrendered to the Father's plan. And then to follow Him, we surrender to Jesus. We stop telling God how it's supposed to be. We stop arguing about the details. And we finally say, your will be done, not mine. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem that day, he knew what was waiting for him. And he was making a statement. And I'm going to quote the words that he said in Luke 19. This is the statement he made. The Son of Man, that's himself, came to seek and save those who are lost. He knew what was happening. He knew what was waiting for him. And I want you to think about yourself today. Are you lost? We can be lost in a lot of different ways. Are you lost today? Maybe for you, you're lost in cultural dogma. The, the questions of what is a woman and what is a man and is this right and what's the right political lead? We get lost in that stuff. Maybe you're lost in relational dysfunction or trauma. There's stuff that's happened in a relationship and it's kept you trapped in that. Maybe you're lost in a broken past that you've never thought you'd ever be able to move beyond. There's stuff that happened to you as a child or under the care of somebody else and it's kept you trapped in that hurt, in that brokenness. Maybe you're lost in an addiction that's dominated your life. You never thought that that substance would be calling the shots, but yet here you are that substance is calling the shots maybe you're lost in pride and lost in arrogance and in your life you're constantly telling other people how it's supposed to be and even telling God I'm not going to do it your way I'm going to do it my way maybe you've been lost in religious experiences that do not transform your real life Jesus said I came to seek and save those who are lost and he knew that when he walked into Jerusalem, there were a few things that were going to happen. He knew that he was going to get hurt. There was pain on the other side of that decision. He knew that his followers would scatter, that he'd be left alone. The people who should stand with him, the people who should be there for him are going to leave him alone. And he knew that he was going to die. He knew it was coming. And he willfully did all of that for you. So that in the lost places in your life, you could be found. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.